Welcome to the Good News Ride Home. I'm Jackson Bird. In case you're wondering about the podcast's name change, please go check your podcast feed for the special podcast announcement that Brian posted to explain all of this. But then, numbers are looking relatively promising in a lot of places, but one incident has jeopardized South Korea. The FDA has approved the first antigen test, and what's the difference between that and an antibody test? Why might a vaccine take so long to develop? Plus, the internet shares their favorite memories of Little Richard, how to cook murder hornets, using nano spacecraft to locate black holes, and how The Simpsons predicted 2020. I thought we would start this week with another quick whip around about where we are at. First, let's stay in the U.S., We're going to pass 1.4 million cases this week, possibly today or tomorrow. That's out of a population of 328 million. Also, we passed 80,000 deaths this weekend. One very big bit of good news, though, daily new cases have been trending down slightly over recent days. In fact, Sunday saw the lowest reported number of confirmed deaths and new cases in the U.S. since the end of March. And let's hope this is not just statistical noise over the weekend, but an indication that things are going in the right direction. Based on the number of test results and the number of new cases, the percentage of positive test results each day is trending downward from 10 to 8%. And when you look at the charts, link in the show notes, you can see this very clearly. And that's what you want to see. The more you test, you should see the numbers decline because you're catching more, as we've discussed in depth before, if you recall that jelly bean analogy Brian shared. The number of new tests each day is trending cautiously upwards. However, new cases per day remain around 20,000. That's a lot. Though deaths are trending downward ever so slightly, they're still oscillating between 750 and 2,500 a day, and that is still a lot. On a state-by-state basis, New Jersey, New York, the whole New York City region, basically, we're seeing general declines in most metrics. Louisiana seems to be past its peak, so that's good. Early hotspots are beginning to decline, as one would hope for. And yet, Pennsylvania is seeing a whole bunch of mixed numbers. Ohio seems to be encountering multiple waves of the disease. New cases there are trending up again. Washington State and California are both seeing either lingering plateaus of numbers or, in the case of California, a troubling increase in new cases. Not good if the earliest hit areas are refusing to show strong downward trends. The most worrying news is coming from overseas. South Korea has long been held up as a place that has seemingly done things right and has kept the disease relatively at bay, and yet, South Korea has seen a rash of new cases, all related to a single 29-year-old man who, on a single night last weekend, visited five clubs and bars in a neighborhood in Seoul and infected at least 54 people, with at least 2,000 others possibly exposed. Think about that. One person from one specific incident might be the cause of South Korea possibly seeing all of their good work undone. This is a quote from Seoul's mayor Park Won-soon. The next two to three days will be a critical time. If Seoul falls, the country falls. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has just approved emergency authorization for the first coronavirus antigen test. 
San Diego-based Quidel Corp's antigen test use nasal swabs to produce samples, which are then run through the company's Sophia analyzers. Results can be ready in a matter of minutes. An antigen test differs from an antibody test in that antigen tests detect the disease by locating the foreign toxin causing the creation of antibodies. To back up, antibodies are proteins that the body creates to fight off a particular infection. Coronavirus antibodies have been found to be undetectable until 14 days after symptoms begin. But with most other viral infections, the antibodies do last for months, sometimes even years, and those antibodies can be donated via plasma to current COVID-19 patients to help them fight off the disease. Getting an antibody test requires a finger prick for your blood sample, One type of test for IgM antibodies can be ready in just a few minutes, while the other kind for IgG antibodies can take up to a week, but is far more reliable. Also, it's worth noting that a negative test doesn't mean you haven't had COVID-19. It's possible that you currently have it without symptoms and your body hasn't produced antibodies to fight back just yet. The other type of tests that we are mostly hearing about are the diagnostic tests, or polymerase chain reaction tests, aka PCR tests, which look for the presence of viral genetic material to tell if a person is currently infected with COVID-19. These are the ones performed with a deep nasal swab, or occasionally a less terrifying throat swab. You can still be tested if you are asymptomatic, though it's worth noting, quoting Business Insider, diagnostic tests present a false negative in about 30% of cases. Patients are therefore tested twice before being confirmed as non-infectious, end quote. But what's giving a lot of people hope is antigen testing. Like PCR tests, it shows if someone is currently infected. However, instead of looking for the virus's genetic material, antigen tests register surface proteins on the virus, which are easier to spot and therefore makes the tests easier to make, easier to conduct, and most importantly, cheaper. Steven Berger, founder of the Global Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology Network, said, quote, The presence of COVID-19 and many other viruses in patient specimens can be confirmed using these antigen tests, usually within minutes to hours. In COVID-19, the viral antigen will already be detectable at the first sign of disease. In fact, many patients will already excrete viral RNA for several days before there are any symptoms whatsoever, end quote. While the ease of manufacturing the antigen test en masse leads many officials to think they could be the key to reopening the country, it's important to note that antigen tests have been found to miss 15-20% to of infections, according to Business Insider, which adds up with Quidel's report of 85% sensitivity for their tests. Quidel expects to manufacture 200,000 test analyzer instruments this week and ramp up to over a million in the coming weeks, said Quidel Chief Executive Douglas Bryant. While testing is all well and good and absolutely necessary, but if you're like me, you're probably not going to feel 100% comfortable in certain environments until we all have access to an effective vaccine. The problem is, that might take a while. How long it might take, like so much else about the vaccine, remains shrouded in unknowns. Wired took a stab at some of those unknowns over the weekend, and while it might leave you with even more questions, they're all worth keeping in mind. First, this new coronavirus is very new to us. There are some viruses that have been around for a long time, like HIV, that we still don't have vaccines for. And because there's so much we don't know about the virus, we don't actually know yet how long immunity will last. Will it be a one-time shot for life, like the measles? 
Or will we have to get it every year, like the flu? Or will we need to get it in multiple parts, like for HPV? And as for the timeline, Nicola Stonehouse, professor of molecular virology at the University of Leeds, said, quote, Normally, outside a pandemic, it will take 10 years or more to develop a vaccine. I think we need to hold that in our minds when we're thinking about what we're trying to achieve with COVID-19, end quote. Fortunately, there are currently at least 115 vaccines in development around the world, and everyone is working to streamline and shorten their processes however they can. And we did get off to a strong start, thanks to Chinese researchers who sequenced SARS-CoV-2 almost immediately, and scientists who were able to quickly determine what must be in the vaccine thanks to previous experience with other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS. While 10 vaccine candidates have miraculously already been able to begin clinical trials, the testing process cannot be rushed. In order for a vaccine to go to market, researchers have to ensure it's safe for humans without any adverse side effects and that it's really effective against COVID-19. The longest part of testing is what's called phase three, when volunteers are given the vaccine and then wait to possibly get infected naturally. Unlike the proposal for human challenge trials that we mentioned on the show previously, no vaccine trials currently purposefully expose volunteers to the virus. You just have to wait and see what happens, which could be even more unlikely now with so many states and countries in lockdown. And even after being able to ensure that the vaccine is safe for people of all age groups and, well, literally everyone, there's the matter of production. The winning vaccine will not just have to be safe and effective, but also capable of being produced in enough quantities for basically the entire world. Companies are already setting up manufacturing sites for potential vaccines without knowing if the vaccine they're setting up a site for will actually work, just in the name of saving time. And according to Charlie Weller, head of vaccines at the Wellcome Trust, we need all the help we can get. He says that even if we have a vaccine this year, it's unlikely everyone would be able to get it by the end of next year. It's just not feasible, he says. Beyond manufacturing and distribution, another logistical concern is deciding who gets the vaccine first. At-risk individuals and essential workers make sense, but remember, their team's working on vaccines all over the world. Will the country that creates the winning vaccine get it first? Quoting Wired, the World Health Organization has stressed the need for any COVID-19 vaccine or treatment to be available to all countries and people. And earlier this week, a summit convened by the EU saw world leaders pledge billions of pounds to research vaccines and therapies and to distribute a vaccine equitably to poorer countries, end quote. And even if we're able to get the coronavirus vaccine made and distributed to everyone who needs it, there's the concern of disrupting the supply chains for other vaccines. The last thing we need right now is an outbreak of another disease. But really, with so many teams and resources around the world being poured into the vaccine effort, things do look promising. And until then, we have to continue working on treatment, tracing, and testing, testing, testing to keep the virus at bay. Kicking off the good news half of the show with the news that Little Richard has passed away this weekend at age 87 from bone cancer. Listen, we've been producing a bummer of a show for two months. It's going to take a while to ease into this good news thing. But no, really, I, I do want to take a moment to celebrate the life of the architect of rock and roll, Little Richard. Quoting the New York Times, 
Little Richard did not invent rock and roll. Other musicians had already been mining a similar vein by the time he recorded his first hit, Tutti Frutti. But Little Richard, delving deeply into the wellsprings of gospel music and the blues, pounding the piano furiously and screaming as if it were for his life, raised the energy level several notches and created something not quite like any music that had been heard before. Something new, thrilling, and more than a little dangerous. And continuing later in the piece, quote, Rock and roll was an unabashedly macho music in its early days, but Little Richard, who had performed in drag as a teenager, presented a very different picture on stage. Gaudily dressed, his hair piled six inches high, his face aglow with cinematic makeup. He was fond of saying in later years that if Elvis was the king of rock and roll, he was the queen. Offstage, he characterized himself variously as gay, bisexual, and omnisexual. His influence as a performer was immeasurable. It could be seen and heard in the flamboyant showmanship of James Brown, who idolized him, and of Prince, whose ambisexual image owed a major debt to his. Presley recorded his songs. The Beatles adopted his trademark sound. Paul McCartney said that the first song he ever sang in public was Long Tall Sally. Bob Dylan wrote in his high school yearbook that his ambition was to join Little Richard. End quote. The internet was overflowing with incredible stories honoring Little Richard all weekend, like this one from comedian Doug Benson, quote, Many years ago, I was having a late-night meal with friends at the pantry near USC. We were laughing and being loud and talking about the Alka-Seltzer suit David Letterman had worn recently in a bit on his show. And then a man approached our booth and asked, Did somebody say Tutti Frutti? It was Little Richard, who proceeded to sit down at our table and regale us with stories about being the architect of rock and roll and inspiring the Beatles. So damn friendly, so damn entertaining, ending sentences with woo. So joyful, R.I.P. And no, I'm not even going to try to imitate Little Richard's classic woo. It's about to get worse in this next one. Comedian Blaine Kapatch shared on Twitter, In 98, a bunch of us went to see the Matthew Broderick Godzilla at the Cinerama Dome. It was disappointing. After the movie, we were all standing out front looking sad when a white limo drove by and the rear window slid down. Little Richard leaned out and waved and went, woohoo. We all flipped out with delight and the limo kept going east on sunset into the night. It's like he knew we were sad and he used his Little Richard powers to save us. I love you, Little Richard. Little Richard was, of course, known for his songs Tutti Frutti, Long Tall Sally, Good Golly Miss Molly, and the theme song to The Magic School Bus. Also, apparently, the theme song to Casper the Friendly Ghost. Though, I gotta say, on re-listening to it today, it doesn't slap quite as hard as the Magic School Bus theme. Here's one thing I didn't know, though, about Tutti Frutti. It was originally part of his live club shows, not something he pitched to the record company during his early recording days. But on a break, during one recording, Little Richard played it for fun at the bar they were having lunch at, and the producer decided that was the hit they needed. The only problem? The lyrics were completely filthy. Like, seriously, they were basically an instruction manual for gay sex. I'm not even going to read them now, but you can check them out at the Vulture link in the show notes. The story has been debated for authenticity, and I'm sure a lot of people could still tell that the song was implicitly sexual, but I'll just say that it is not at all what I was expecting for a song that I first heard on those Disney pop and rock cartoon music videos. In any case, Little Richard helped define rock and roll, and will be sorely missed, but he left one hell of a legacy. So by now you've probably heard about 2020's latest plot twist, 
murder hornets. In case you've missed this terrifying development, murder hornets, also called Asian giant hornets, are the world's largest wasps, sometimes measuring as much as two inches long, with stingers growing up to a quarter inch. They're native to East Asia, and despite the fact that they kill 30 to 50 people in Japan annually with the help of their toxic venom, they're not actually that dangerous to humans. The murder part of their name comes from their violent nature towards their prey. They usually only attack humans when provoked, and in fact they only got the nickname Murder Hornet when they hit the scene here in the States at the end of 2019. So far, they've only been spotted in Washington State and nearby Vancouver, probably having arrived via shipping containers, but scientists are concerned they could spread beyond the Pacific Northwest and cause a threat to the bee population. Did anyone else not have murder hornets on their 2020 bingo card? Well, the Simpsons writers may have. Let's listen to a clip from a 1993 episode called Marge in Chains. We need a cure! <laughs> Why, the only cure is bed rest. Anything I give you would only be a placebo. Where do we get these placebos? Maybe there's some in this truck. That buzzing sound at the end is... Well, okay, the box that cracked open in the cartoon there was actually labeled killer bees, not murder hornets. But you know what? I'm going to give it to them. Because an outbreak of homicidal stinging insects when all the people want is a cure to the outbreak of disease is pretty dang spot on. So once again, the Simpsons have proved prophetic. And hey, since murder hornets are apparently part of our lives now, why don't you try to make the best of things by adding them to your dinner? After all, it can't be any weirder than the creative quarantine meals you've been throwing together. Ryan F. Mandelbaum over at Lifehacker teamed up with chef Joseph Yoon, the founder of Brooklyn Bugs, to craft several dishes featuring the Asian giant hornet, which, it turns out, is actually a delicacy in Japan. Yoon's creations ran the gamut from popcorn to spring rolls to infused sake. You can go to the link in the show notes for a rundown of how he made each dish, as well as a ton more information about the general preparation of hornets. And if you're not in Washington and haven't spotted any murder hornets to kill for your lunch, never fear. Mandelbaum and Yoon recommended the site Entosense, where you can place an order for all of your edible insect needs. Though an important note that people with shellfish allergies may also be allergic to certain insects, so eat at your own risk. And finally today, we look to space for a reminder that despite everything happening here on Earth, the planet is still spinning, and there is so much out there yet to be explored. You may have heard last week about the discovery of a new black hole, the closest black hole to the Earth ever found at about 2,500 light years closer to us than the next nearest black hole. Black holes are extraordinarily difficult to locate. Quoting National Geographic, Dozens of black holes in the galaxy have been spotted feeding on nearby clouds of gas, a process that emits X-rays as the material swirls around the edges of the black hole. But the majority of black holes in our galaxy are invisible, so the only way to find them is by observing their gravitational effects on surrounding objects, end quote. And while astronomers have recently found this new, nearby black hole by accident while studying a pair of stars, there's another one they've been trying to find for quite some time that's much, much further away. Part of what makes locating this other black hole so difficult is that astronomers aren't actually positive it is a black hole. 
Quoting Discover Magazine, For some time, astronomers have been gathering evidence that a massive planet might be orbiting the sun at a distance of around 500 astronomical units, or 70 billion kilometers. The evidence comes from the orbits of icy bodies in the Kuiper Belt beyond Neptune. These objects seem to cluster together in ways that can only be explained if they were being herded by some massive object. This object, Planet 9, as it is dubbed, must be between 5 and 10 times the mass of Earth, but so far away that it's hard to see from Earth, despite numerous ongoing searches, end quote. And for quick reference, Pluto, you know, actual Planet 9 in all of our hearts, is 5.9 billion kilometers from the Sun, so 1 14th as far away as this other maybe planet. And I say maybe because some astronomers say it might not be a planet at all, but rather a black hole. A primordial black hole left over from the Big Bang and captured by the Sun, weighing in just as massive as predicted for Planet 9, but only measuring 5 centimeters across. Hence why it's been so difficult to find. Ed Witten, a physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, has proposed sending a fleet of nanospacecraft towards the assumed black hole and watching for deviations from the planned trajectory. Quoting again from Discover, The big advantage is that such spacecraft needn't carry their own fuel, but would instead sit on the tip of a laser beam generated on Earth. This laser beam could accelerate them continuously for long periods of time, allowing them to reach huge velocities of perhaps 1 or 2% the speed of light. To search for Planet 9, one would like spacecraft velocities of at least hundreds of kilometers per hour, says Witten, adding that such speeds would allow a spacecraft to travel 500 AU on a 10-year timescale. What's more, it's possible to launch nanospacecraft by their hundreds, possibly thousands, toward Planet 9. That's important because Witten estimates that such a spacecraft would need to come within a few dozen AU of a black hole for any changes in its trajectory to be observable. And because astronomers don't yet know exactly where Planet 9 might be, the only option is this scattergun approach. End quote. There would be significant logistical challenges as well as a gargantuan budget required for this endeavor, but it could make huge strides in the realm of nanospacecraft and not to mention prove the existence of this long-sought celestial object. That's what we've got for you today. I hope you liked our tweaks to the show. Like Brian said in his announcement, as coronavirus news has slowed down and we, frankly, as a team, have gotten a little burnt out on reporting reductive stories every day, we wanted to try to be more expansive. So in addition to important updates on what's going on, we're also going to bring you cool stuff we're hearing about. Still timely and topical, just a little less serious for the most part. Stuff to maybe blow your mind, stuff to make you smile, stuff to make you feel smarter and better and more productive, stuff to remind you that the world is still spinning. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.